episode 103 of Texing. Today's show is a panel show, innit? On today's show, we're talking to Sebastian Arno and also Samuel Clay. Hello, geezers. Welcome to the show. <laughs> is, that how, is that how you grew up talking? Yeah, in the East End of London. I grew up a uh, little East End London, I didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're, uh, your dad is... Uh... You say your dad has a certain kind of accent and your mom has a different kind, didn't you? Well, my dad is definitely a Cockney, yeah. And what about your mom? She's just a, like, just a, oh, how, how, how do you say that? Uh, uh, posh. A middle, middle class, middle class lady. Oh, okay. Maybe, a, posh, a, maybe a little bit posh as well, yeah. Received pronunciation. That's right. Now, I've, just got a, I've just got a cough. I mean, there's something going on in my throat here. <clears throat> Sorry about that, guys. Yeah, I need to drink something. All right, let's get this show on the road. Drink, you get some water. You get some water there with you. I got some coffee. Okay, good. I had my tooth surgery yesterday. Okay, well, great. Well, let's talk about that in a minute. First, uh, guys, <laughs> welcome to the show. <laughs> yeah, Sam, thank you, Sam. It's great to see you. Talk to you again, Sam. Uh, Sebastian, all Sebastian, you and I seem to email back and forth every once in a while. So, doesn't seem like it's been so long. That's right. So, um, Sebastian, what have you been up to lately? Why don't you give us a little? Uh, update on your activities since you're last on uh well i think i'm i'm, I'm wondering if people wonder if you know what happened with swarm because that's really what how i got brought into that whole game right um yeah oh yeah just justin why don't you um t- tell us real quick about uh how sebastian is connected uh, to us in the show maybe we should start. all right i'll, I'll say that very quickly so in the, the many different entrepreneurial endeavors i do one of them was creating an ipad game called swarm and um, I created this game, but I really didn't have any idea how to build an AI for it. And um, I put a blog post up about that and tweeted about it. And Sebastian had been following me on Twitter for quite a while. And uh, had apparently liked the general tech tweets that I put up. He clicked the link, had a look at the page and thought, hmm, I'd like to have a go at making the AI for that. So uh, contacted me. Then we got, to get, got together and got on like a house on fire. And the rest is history. Cool. And, uh, and what episode was it, Sebastian, that you were on? Do you remember the number? Yeah, well, I think 51, I think right after Dvorak, I think. Wow, that has been a while. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Either that or we're just doing a lot of shows. Maybe it's a little both. I agree. And, uh, and, oh, and real quick, let's just talk to a uh, gift from uh, Sam. Sam, what's your, uh, what have you been up to? Why don't you give us a little recap of what you've been up to? Well, how about, how about why don't you, you say what our connection with Sam is? I can't remember. I'm <laughs> oh, crying out loud. <laughs> um, I'm actually blanking. Sam, what was the name of your, uh, of the, your, your AI newsreader? Newsblur. Newsblur. God, I'm just blanking. Okay, Newsblur. So we had, uh, we had Sam on, um, I don't know, this is probably episode, what, like, 80 something 90 episode 90 episode 90 with uh amir halen definitely right good <laughs> and uh we, we it was the first it was sort of our first um experiment with doing a double interview which sort of worked out and sort of didn't it, it worked out in the sense that we got a great compare and contrast between how two smart um young entrepreneurs were making things happen and you guys 
you guys really did things differently, but both were being successful. Um, uh, Amir was more of a do everything yourself, build framework from scratch. You used Django. Um, I don't know. There was just there was just a, a lot of things that were different, but they both seemed to work. But the problem with it was that I think our audience wanted to get a, dig a little deeper into what each one of you was doing. So yeah. that was kind of the the downside. Is everybody's like, well, I would have liked to have hit more, hear more, and like say. Wow, the technology of Newsblur, for instance. So, um, okay, so Sam, uh, won't you tell us a little bit how Newsblur is going? Well, hold Anything? on, Sebastian didn't give his update. You asked him first, then passed him <laughs> over to me, and then you never let him give his update. Well, okay, all right, all right, yeah, let's go. Okay, so then we'll get back to Sam in a second. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, uh, well the, sw- the Swarm story is kind of interesting because, uh, you know, I built the first version of the AI, you know, which I, I named Cerebro. And um, uh, one interesting thing that happened is that while whilst we were using um, Aptena, um, no, not Aptena, Accelerator. I'm already jumping on the gun with the, the acquisition they did this week, right. but uh, Accelerator and Titanium. And uh, what happened is that when I was developing the, the actual AI and the algorithm and all that stuff purely in JavaScript, uh, I got we kind of realized until too late with Justin that uh, after I actually got in touch with um, the CEO of Titanium, after actually sending him a, a cold email to ask me about the technology and release some details, that really their technology, uh, that the way they implemented JavaScript was not actually a cross-compiling technology, it was more of a binding. Mm-hmm. So the JavaScript engine, so my AI engine that was running in JavaScript purely, once it was actually translated to the iPad, um, was pretty much 20 times slower in speed, at 20 times less resource to actually uh, do searches and, uh, and decisions during the time we had uh, decided with Justin it was actually acceptable for a user, which I think was about two to five seconds to wait between each move. So you mean and it was so 20 when, times slower than if we'd have just done it natively in uh, WebKit browser? Uh, yeah, that's right. Actually, even on, on my slowest machine, which was at that time a, a second a, a second generation MacBook Air, uh, which I was running, you know, I, it was basically a Core 2 Duo running at I ran it at like 800 megahertz, and it was still 20 times slower than this. So what happened is that why you know with Justin we started to play a little bit against the AI, you know, on our desktop initially. Justin said, you know, that's actually quite good. You know, it's actually, you know, teaching me some moves here. It's, you know, I can beat it, you know, some ways, but on small, on small boards, it was actually quite, quite good. And I said, you know, I, yeah, maybe it's just good enough to release for, I was not really satisfied. I mean, I had, I only had implemented uh, a few little things in it and uh, that I wanted to do. So Justin said, yeah, let's just wrap it up, package it and send it. And then, you know, he tested in the iPad and, you know, so yeah, that's okay. That's okay. But really after it was released, people say, you know, the AI is just, you know, kind of dumb, right? <laughs> just, you know, and, and maybe it's a challenge for Justin, but not nobody else is fine. Wait, let me ask you a quick question to make sure I get this straight. It, um, it was 20 times slower, slower in titanium than it was if you're running it in a WebKit browser, not 20 times slower than say, running a natively compiled program written in Objective-C in Cocoa? Uh, no, let me rephrase. The, when you run, when, when you get your code ready in Titanium, you can run the emulator for the iPad on your machine. Okay. Right? That, that what I was seeing right there through the emulator was 20 times faster compared to the actual what the iPad was able to do. Oh, so, okay, okay. And at, at, at that time, I still didn't have an iPad. I got an iPad via proxy because my wife got one at Christmas. So now it's a different story. I could actually test it on the device. But, you know, we were, Titanium had kind of done some kind of not shady marketing, but, you know, kind of got us to believe that, yeah, you could write in JavaScript and get a native 
speed. Yeah. But really all they've done is basically take a bunch of native libraries on the iPad, on a BlackBerry, on Android, and they just basically hooked it up to bind this to a JavaScript runtime, which is just a WebKit for uh, the iPad or the iPhone, basically. So you're not any faster in terms of running pure JavaScript algorithm uh, in those devices. You're just running basically really slow because, you know, the JavaScript code is just not fast enough to do yes. uh, calculations. So. See, I was, I was under, under the um, misconception that... Um, that it compiled it to, that it actually translated yeah. your JavaScript into the no. corresponding Java or Objective C, and then and then that was compiled to native code. That's what it. That's I right. Impression of. So I was completely that, misled. That was that was the same impression I had. For him, you know, I listened to you as well, and I believed it to some degree when I was running the emulator, but I didn't have the actual device to test. Uh, and uh, and I think that was kind of the deployment here. So you know, I had a great little algorithm that was actually you know pretty good to start with, and uh, and then got disappointed by the speed you know on the final device. So uh, at that point, just you know, I think you know what, this is not focus on this. We really need to move forward and and get the multiplayer going, and you know maybe get different boards. So after you know after I was done with that effort, I said, okay, that's that's okay. Let's just move on. And so I built uh, uh, an actual board editor uh, in in JavaScript. And Canvas that could actually bring us different layout and generate actually the whole layout for different games. Uh, so that was one thing that was pretty cool. Uh, the second thing that I did after that was actually to build the multiplayer stack so we could actually play. Uh, Justin and I could play remotely uh, over just a regular web browser. Eventually, when we would compile it down to through Titanium, would be iPad users could basically play against each other as long as they had a network connection, which would be kind of great if you wanted kind of like a harder open and that the basic AI we had packaged with our last release. And, um, and while doing that, I, you know, I got, uh, based on what Justin told me and some research, I got involved with the PubNub guys and really liked what they had to offer. And um, basically decided, you know what, that, that system is kind of nice. It was kind of pricey for the kind of really chatty conversations we needed for Swarm because there's a lot of moves back and forth. And that would have costed us a little bit if we, you know, if we had actually, you know, 100 concurrent users, that would have costed us a little bit every month, like, you know, 20, 30 bucks. And we're like, you know, if that really takes on, we're going to be really in trouble here paying all that stuff. So I took a couple of weeks and, and wrote basically an open source version of the PubNub server which would actually act as the API, as, with the same API, and uh, deployed it and got the game of Swarm running in multiplayer against that, but it could be swapped out whenever we wanted to actually the, pub, the real PubNub service if we wanted more scalability and all that kind of stuff. So it was kind of like a cheap version to get out there to get us going, but we could have switched at any time to use a regular PubNub service to scale way beyond just a, so a you, few users. You were, in, you were in conversation with the PubNub guys, um, Stephen Bloom, I think is the primary developer, about creating an open source version, right? And they, they had no problem with it? Yeah, yeah. So I emailed them before I started. I said, are you okay with that? They said, yeah, we'll support it. We'll promote it. And um, I, I, you know, I, I did it, and we we were able to play actually a couple of games with Justin. I think it was towards the end of October, uh, right. uh, a swarm together. So you know, there was a couple of little glitches here and there we had to to work through. And really, that at the end of that, we realized that the code base was kind of really poor to do what we wanted to do because it was actually a lot of the, the way that Justin had built it and again it's not a, <laughs> a to bash no, not to bash him at all here but you know he had built, come on yeah, wait, let's bash him a little bit I mean well, it's, it's a typical thing that every developer does you want to get something out there so you just make those decisions to get it 
you know, where you want it to be. So it's playable. It was a great game, but for multiplayer, you needed to have more um, asynchronicity, you know, within, within a code base. Well, yeah, because basically you had the, the states of the board rarely lead to the states of the div objects within uh, yeah, the WebKit I'd, view. I'd, cu- right? I'd coupled so, up the, um, I'd, I'd coupled the, the uh, business logic with the, with the view. So we were, we were in the situation where basically over the multiplayer, when the move was made, if the move was not made fast enough on one end versus the other player, they were calmly getting out of sync. And so that was, but, you know, we managed to play a few games together and we, I, I, I kind of refactored what I needed to refactor. But we said, you know what, that's kind of like, you know, a great thing, but with a bunch of band-aids and duct tape to make it work. So we said, you know, let's just try to, to restart from scratch. Basically, uh, at the end of this effort, uh, we had tons of fun, and with Justin, we looked at Swarm and said, that's a great game. I think we can, we really need to make it multi-platform. And when I looked at Titanium, I even contacted again the CEO, say, what are your plans to introduce, you know, Game Center in Titanium? Because it's really one of the main features that uh, you want to have a competitive game where people try to beat scores or get rankings. We're planning to introduce ELO rankings like in chess or checkers. Uh, and, uh, and it was not there. So they said, they basically come back, came back to me and say, well, do you want to develop it? We'll pay you for this. And I said, well, that's great, but I really don't have the time to develop it. So I said, well, you know, we'll, we'll get into it later. So with Justin, we kind of got to decisions. Okay, we need to refactor the game. We know we need to make it multi-device. We have the technology to make it multiplayer. We know the mistakes we made for the AI. So Sebastian, you just need to make basically to rewrite a portion of the AI more like a native code so it can be faster on, on a device. And so we said, let's just wait. Let's just wait until Titanium and the technology is there maybe in six months or a year so that we don't have to reinvent the wheel because really we, we don't want to waste so much time on just fighting the platforms that are just not ready yet for, so that we can make a game one time and deploy it across multiple platforms. I, I missed something there. You said somebody was going to pay, offer to pay you to do what? The exactly? Titanium guys. The, the, the Titanium guys uh, basically offered for Sebastian to integrate the um, Apple's game game center into their product. Oh, okay. I, I yeah, because you can, you can you can write plugins for Titanium, you know, okay. natively or even in JavaScript. And uh, that's something they haven't done yet. And, you know, it would have been, you know, substantial, probably, you know, uh, three or four weeks of work. But, you know, I just, I just didn't have the time to do that. So yeah. if somebody is listening to the show, they want to do that and then have some Objective-C um, skills, I, I can put you in touch. I'm sure they'll be happy to pay somebody to do that because that's a huge plus for the gaming platform around Absolator. So Yeah, that's interesting. So right now, if you wanted to write some kind of a, a game that um, required any type of performance, Titanium really wouldn't be a good solution for you uh, it kind of depends yeah. what what you mean by performance in terms of animation or anything that's UI yeah based. I guess I'm thinking I, I mean obviously advanced AI is problematic but I was thinking more along the lines of advanced animation you know um, that's not no that's not true I don't know if that's what what Sebastian's saying he's just saying that basically all of the infrastructure that that makes it easy to deploy a game across multiple platforms and devices isn't quite in place yet in Titanium. Oh, so that's that's different. Okay, so the yeah. Game Center, it's not like it's the, um, uh, you know, like it, in uh, Microsoft and Windows, it's like called like DirectX, you know? No, no, no. Game, cent- game Center is just like a like a kind of central API that makes it easy for, to keep track of ELO, ELO ratings and connect players together and all that kind of stuff. It's like a it's kind like of... A, it's like- yeah, it's like a social board. Like imagine yeah. you know, if, you, if you're yeah. playing a game uh, on the iOS platform that has Game Center, you go there and you see all your friends 
and yeah. you see their top scores and you can challenge them so it's like uh, actually enables you to have multiplayer games or challenges uh, and it's very very well done so it's it would be silly for us to try to reinvent it and it's not it's not written into titanium yet like the, the titanium api doesn't connect with it and doesn't interact with it yet Right. Okay. So hopefully some some of our listeners are were as confused as I was. So everyone's not thinking, going, Jason, why are you asking such stupid <laughs> questions? <laughs> I have to be the guy at the front who goes, you know, like when you're in that class and this person's asking all these obvious questions, you're just like, come on, dude. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, so you're wondering what I've been working on in the past like couple of months? Yeah, that or what your favorite TV shows are, whatever, you know. Since we last spoke. <laughs> So uh, in the past two months, I've been working on a river of news view, which is the first time I'm actually using AI for implicit suggestions on what you should read. Um, the common misconception behind news blur is that the AI is telling you what you should read, when in fact, um, all it's doing is suggesting here are uh, phrases that you might like. Do you like them? Yes or no. And if you say you do, then it explicitly looks for those phrases in future stories. Um, however, what I'm launching soon, hopefully within the next week, is the River of News, which will implicitly try to guess uh, the order of the stories, the unread stories to show you between a collection of multiple feeds. It will try to guess which stories you want to read more than the others. So it's that's not trying. Very, yeah, that's very cool, actually. Yeah. You don't suffer from the, uh, the false negative or even the false positive problem where you're finding stories that the user's just not interested in. But if they take the time, the further down the list they go, the less interesting the stories are. Um, and I'm, I'm playing around mainly with a lot of coefficients, um, which uh, are, are split between the story date, so how rel uh, current the story is. I'm, I'm hovering around making that a very, le uh, very small level of importance relative to um, the statistics on the feed, how many times you open the feed, how many stories you read in the feed, how long the metrics on how long you read a feed, those are going to weigh heavily on new stories that come in. And then additionally on the intelligence, so phrases that are found in collocations between stories and feed. So what kind of, what is the fundamental um, AI technique that you're using to build the River News engine? Um, right now I'm just using statistical uh, analysis, just statistics um, based on uh, what you use more or less. Can you give a specific yeah, like, what, what there's statistics? No, there's no fundamental AI. The intelligence is actually not the computer, but it's you, the user. And okay. all I'm doing is just taking uh, statistics. So the number is a metrics, um, metrics-based uh, sorting algorithm. Okay. And, um, and, no, and you're also, so in addition to, the, to the, the metrics that, or I should say the coefficients that you just described, the date of the post, how often, how frequently they open the feed, you also um, compare sort of the content of the actual post or the title of the post and compare that to things that they've read and, and liked in the past? Yeah. So what I look for are, um, it, if it was just things that they liked and read in the past, it would be implicit because I have to figure out what about those stories that they like. But I've actually asked them, when you train the feeds, and I have a feed trainer where you can train many feeds at once, um, what about this story do you like? And you can actually highlight parts of the title and say, uh, you know, this is John Gruber's uh, feed. Um, I don't like everything he writes about, but anytime he has a star, which is uh, one of the, the feature stories that he writes, you highlight the star, and then suddenly that is explicitly denoted as something you like. And then all I have to do is look for that star in either the content or the title. Now, it just kind of reminds me a little bit of the the uh, website Hunch, which 
I think you, you sort of train it by telling, answering a series of questions, and they try and cluster you or cluster your likes and dislikes. Yeah, are familiar, yeah. Are you familiar with them? Yeah. Absolutely. I love Hunch. I'm in New York City, um, so you know I already worship uh, Chris Dixon and his blog. Um, and right. uh, actually, I think Chris just won an award last night at the uh, the Crunchies um, oh. for being one of the uh, you know top uh, VCs. Um, and he and he did it with uh, Katarina Fake, who was one of the co-founders of um, Flickr, Flickr, right? Yeah, okay. that's right. Um, so what Hunch does is closer to decision trees, which is, um, you know, based on things that other people have done in the past, you're following uh, a tree that's getting narrower and narrower based on your preferences. And so for the most part, you, you have a, a large tree um, of uh, two child nodes at um, two child uh, nodes underneath each node, and you have a percentage based on, uh, if you said, you know, Hunch is, a, let's say you're looking for a camera, and if you like, you know, S digital SLRs, you're probably going to go with a Nikon uh, or a Canon based on the percentages of everyone else. Um, and so what they're doing is, it's not rudimentary by any means, but it is statistics. And, um, you know, I wouldn't call it simple because they're processing I don't know how many millions of rows, but they are effectively just doing statistical analysis. Um, so on so it, 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 essentially what you're saying is they're using traditional techniques. They're not yeah. cutting edge techniques, yeah. they're, they're, but they're sort of applying it in a very interesting new way, I guess. Exactly. So this is what the implicit, um, the implicit intelligence, which is, yeah, it is much more traditional. The problem with the, you know, very, the new style of, uh, of using uh, collective intelligence is that it leads to false negatives and false positives. I'm trying to avoid that as much as possible. So, so what have you learned? What have been your biggest sort of lessons learned while trying make, making your first go at this AI? Um, so more traditional AI is uh, natural language processing, which I've used to try to figure out um, what are the weighted entities in uh, a story. So your entities could be people, they could be places or things. Um, and there's actually free APIs out there. If you've heard of Open Calais, uh, they're a wonderful free service from Thomson Reuters, uh, who actually just bought Calais, um, where you can give it just a, a huge glob of text, and it will give back what it thinks are the entities, uh, the people who are involved in this, uh, in, in the paragraph of text. Um, Wait, this is, a, this is an actual API? This like is a rest. free API you can use. The only thing you're limited is the rate you can use the API. And it's only limited because, you know, they only have so many machines. So you, you know, you send in uh, 100,000 characters of text, you get back a result in 30 can seconds. You, can you give us a specific example of, of what kind of text you might send and what kind of uh, response you might receive? Um, we use OpenClay actually at my uh, primary job, which is at Document Cloud. Um, and Document Cloud, you might know from our open source projects, we release Backbone.js, which is an MVC for JavaScript, and Underscore, which is functional programming paradigms for JavaScript. Um, but what we do is analysis on documents. And so people upload, like, I, I don't know um, if you know <laughs> local New York uh, stories, but the FBI just um, uh, arrested 100 mob uh, folks from the mob. And there's all these documents that are indictments from the federal government uh, you know, grand jury indictments that have all these phrases um, in uh, in the documents. What we do is we send these indictments over to Open Calais. We've already processed them to remove uh, any non-ASCII characters, um, effectively tokenizing them. 
and we send that over to Open Clay. And what we get back are all of the mobsters who are actually well known and in the news. And if they've ever been in the news before, Open Clay has a record for them as an entity, as a person of interest. Um, and so we can just easily pull out those people of interest. And you can already tell this is going to be prone to error. Um, a very common error I've seen is uh, Mike Wallace is a journalist with 60 Minutes. Um, but if you follow NASCAR, uh, he's also a race car driver. Um, different people. He's a, he's a busy guy is what you're saying. <laughs> busy. He, it, it's, they're actually different people, of course. Um, but I think a few years ago, Mike Wallace, the 60 Minutes journalist, was involved in a car accident. And all bets are off at that point. Right, who that is, right. <laughs> so, uh, now you said Open Calais. What is the actual URL of that service? Um, oh, I, don't, I never remember. I always Google it. <laughs> okay. How do, you, how do you spell it? I mean, what is Open Calais? Calais is C-A-L-A-I-S. So it's okay. OpenCalais.com. Okay, okay. Well, okay, why don't you also give us a quick update on Newsblur, the, uh, the startup itself? Because the last time we spoke, I think you had 100 paying users or something like that. And if my recollection is right, you were, you were only charging like a dollar a month. And Justin and That's I, right. at least I was trying to convince you to, to raise that price. Um, but I'd be curious, what's, what's, what's going on with the, uh, the business? You know, I've, I've actually been thinking about um, not only not raising the price, but making anyone who's paid for your subscription to just give them a lifetime subscription. Um, <laughs> wow. <because I> want, <laughs> so you are contrarian. I, I want them to use the product um, and I want them to tell their friends about it uh, because Newsblur has just such wonderful um, scale of, uh, of economics because the more people who subscribe to a feed, I have to do nothing else. So really, I already, you know, favor popular feeds. When you come on a Newsblur, you have a thousand feeds. Um, I winnow those down to the 64 most heavily subscribed feeds. So I don't even notice when new users come on. I get uh, a life hacker story, which I just got a couple months ago. And I have CPU graphs of, uh, you, you know, how much processing Newsletter was doing. And it was like, you know, just a little point oh one on load average. It was nothing. Um, well, okay, you, you say you, you whittle it down to 64. So what happens with other feeds? Does that mean that if I had 1,000 feeds, I would only see stories for the top 64? You would only be able to see um, any 64 feeds that you choose. I auto-choose them for you based on, uh, I order them by popularity and then auto choose the top 64 most popular. This is of course, if you're not a premium, if you are a premium, you know, I, uh, I enable all of your feeds. Um, but you know, I have 150 premium users now. 150 is like running a local database. It's, you know, not, mo not that much work. Well, you know, I actually heard an interesting, um, uh, interview yesterday with the, um, guy who did pin does pinboard. I am, yeah. which is like a delicious competitor. And the way he does his pricing is it's, it gets more expensive the more users are on the system because it, since it's a social system, the value increases the more people there are on it. And it sounds like Newsblur is kind of that way that the, the more people are on it, maybe the more, the more value they get out of it. Or, or I don't know, maybe, or maybe what you're saying is that the load, the additional load decreases. It's cheaper for them, yeah. Yeah, but I wonder if there's some way that you could balance it because, okay, it gets cheaper for you to run the service, but I would think that the intelligence gets better and better the more people you have. If you have 100 versus 10,000, I would yeah. think 10,000 users, you'd have much better AI, in which case you'd be providing more value, in which case it might be easier to charge a little bit more money. It's interesting that you bring that up because I'm actually trying to avoid the mentality of the herd. Um, when a lot of people like a story, that doesn't necessarily mean it's better. It just means that more people have heard of it and more people want to read about it. It's like talking about Facebook. I personally, you know, don't use Facebook all that often, and I don't care to read Facebook news. But if you were to run statistical analysis on TechCrunch, 
of all the stories they publish, the Groupon stories, the Facebook stories, the Twitter stories are the ones, even the Quora stories now, are the ones that have the highest uh, read count, uh, the most time spent reading those stories. But it tells me nothing about what's actually interesting. So the more mm. users are on there, it actually gets, it, it doesn't get less useful. I can't extrapolate some information, but I've actually just been ignoring all that popular stuff. It's only what you as an individual have been doing just because I want to tailor it for personalization. Right. Well, that, that makes complete sense. So, but the, the other thing that, about that pen board interview, um, which was interesting, is, is that you know, people are starting to become a little wary of free services because they want to make sure that the, it's going to be an ongoing concern. So if they're going to upload all their bookmarks or their photos or their, their news service or their, their, their feeds and they want to, you know, they're investing time in, in this service, they get people get a little concerned that if it's free, that's just going to disappear someday. And um, it seems like there's also a movement towards even these consumer-based services charging, even if it's a modest amount, something so that um, it, it, it sort of removes a little bit of that concern. I mean, how do you feel about that? I mean, are you, in addition to the, the idea of like, you know, it would probably be nice to make some money too. That's right. Um, so two things. One, I think having an API that is uh, approachable and gets all of your data so I have data not only about which feeds you're using, which you can export into OPML, and that's how some people are importing their feeds into Newsblur. Um, but also, and I don't have this yet, but an API so that you can get whatever I've collected in whatever proprietary data format I have, just so you can get the statistics. And then if some enterprising young entrepreneur one day wants to take those statistics and put it in their own feed reader or their own next generation, whatever we call it, um, we might do that. I'm thinking about writing an API to do that. Unfortunately, I think, I, I don't know if it's unfortunately, I just have so much steam right now and I'm building so many great features. I don't think it's necessary to have that export API just yet. Um, but I'm thinking about it. Um, okay, it, before, before, we, before we move on to other topics, I just want to just ask you this one question. So what is the growth in your user base? You had 100 when we talked to you last. Have you moved past that at this point? 150, he said, paid. Oh, did you say 150 paid? Yeah, yeah. 150. I have not, however, had any stories um, since the texting interview. I've had a, a few uh, stories that are just like, you know, uh, <laughs> I don't know what you'd call those smaller regional blogs or something. Uh, is if such a thing existed. I've had a few of those, but no like big media sites have linked to it. And so for, you know, just organic growth, I think that was pretty good. Yeah, that's not bad. Um, sorry, I missed that about the, the paid users. Justin is, is uh, pinging me on Skype and that distracts me. I can only think about one thing at a time. So. <laughs> um, that, and I guess I'm not a very good listener. But the, the other thing is, you know, in terms of just building traffic, I mean, have you not put any time into say writing stories, hacker news type of stories? Um, because I think that's how you got a lot of attention in the first place is you yeah. spent some time doing that. No, you're absolutely right. I think that's one of the easiest ways to get traffic. Um, it takes me, it always took me, uh, when I was writing essays in college, it took me an hour per page, which most people thought it was ludicrous, you know, an hour per page, they could write a page in 10 minutes. Um, with blog posts, it seems that the blog post that I wrote for, um, you know, the what happened to Newsblur, I right. think took on the order of 10 hours to write. Um, and it's like a, a four or 500 word essay. Yeah, I, I can I can tell you my experience, too. I mean, I'm, I think obviously everybody's different. Um, but the, the essays that I wrote that got a lot of traffic did really well. I mean, I spent probably eight, you know, probably six to eight. 10 hours or something like that. I mean, that was a lot. So you're right. It's a, it's a big, um, big investment of time. It's kind of painful yeah. <laughs> and it's I, time you're not working on your product, which is kind of frustrating because you really want to be writing code. 
And I always, I always feel like a nitwit because when I'm reading comments of other people who are, who are blog writers, they're like, oh, yeah, I just crank out a blog post or it takes me two or three hours of time. And I'm like, what am I doing wrong where it takes four to five times as long for me to do something that's similar? Um, yeah, I think that's I think that's BS. I think those people are kind of full of it. And, and, <laughs> I mean, there are some people who occasionally you'll see something gets on the front page of Hacker News, and it's like a paragraph or two, and you're like, I can't believe that made it all the way. But generally speaking, I think the stuff that does really well, or people spend a fair amount of time on it, I, I would be my guess. I uh, I have ideas of what blog posts, like good blog posts, could be. Um, I was thinking just even simple stuff like. Uh, I've been using MapReduce a lot, and for me, MapReduce is a new concept. Um, I've never used MapReduce before, and now that I switched to Mongo uh, for storage, I use MapReduce all the time. For the River of News, I MapReduce uh, among multiple feeds, and then I try to you know, make things as easy as possible for the database. I do a lot of uh, work in code afterwards after I pull all the results. And I think a tutorial on MapReduce that is more advanced than just the basic count the number of tags, which is just a list in uh, stories, um, which is the standard tutorial. Every tutorial of MapReduce I've ever seen is either count tags or do something very advanced, very proprietary that no one will understand because you don't know any of these models that I'm using. Um, and so I'm thinking Newsblur has a very simple concept of many stories in many feeds and many subscriptions to those feeds and then intelligence on those stories. I think a lot of people can wrap their heads around it and then write a tutorial uh, on MapReduce. So one thing I would just say, I think you could do, which I think would be interesting, is if you did it like a five-parter or eight-parter, you know, where just kind of like a scribble tutorials, I think, you know, where you create like a drawing program as an example of how to use a framework or whatever. So rather than just trying to make some giant size tutorial that's going to take you 30 hours to write, you'd break it to say, okay, there's going to be five parts or eight parts, and part one is going to, you know, just get to the basics, but then you get a lot more um, mileage out of it, and then, um, but you can make it a more sophisticated tutorial. That's a very good idea. So, um, I'm not sure, well, uh, Sebastian, um, you well, I have some have question. A... I have some yeah, questions okay. here for okay. Sam. So, uh, have you thought about, um, since obviously you seem to think that the, the more people actually use your system, uh, the more interesting thing you might be able to, to squeeze out of it, even though you're not so high on collective intelligence. Uh, have you thought about using like a Dropbox model to, to entice people to say you can have a premium account if you invite five people that become users or things like that, where you're trying to really grow your user base uh, kind of exponentially? That's a very good idea. I'm leery about uh, the perception that I'm spamming people, you know, if it, Instagram isn't spam because you see it on everybody's Twitter feed all the time. Um, but when you click on it, you have content on the other end. I feel like if I were to do that, I'd be spamming people by framing uh, other people's content and then bringing people just to the Newsblur site. I do like the idea of invite five friends. I'm wondering how many people are actually going to do that just so you can get, I don't know, half a dozen. Well, a especially... Dozen especially with the price points that you've got, right? So yeah, when, oh. when it's just a buck, it's like invite five friends and save a buck. <laughs> that doesn't mean... How much is Dropbox if you wanted to, say, get 50 gigabytes? I think it's, um, I don't know, 40, is it 40 bucks, 50 bucks, I think? Yeah, I can't remember. Well, well there, there's also the, the, the fact that I think the, the friends might have similar interests. 
right? So it's almost like, you know, hey, I have a great way to, to get access to that, to that type of news. You should really check it out because you might like it. And, or, you know, last FM, the same way they, they deal with that, where you might find friends with the same kind of interest by, the, you know, the news they read over a whole year, say, you know, oh, you're very compatible with somebody, uh, you know, you might want to, you know, know or something like that. I don't know. There's also, I think, some other way, some other social way, I think you could twist it around. And also to make money, I'll tell you again, from my perspective, because I do a lot of web analytics, would be to eventually, when it grows to a certain size, you can probably start to see, hey, I have a really good demographic here that's using the site, and I can uh, really tell what, you know, what people are going to like or not like, you know, in terms of stories and, and look at sentiment analysis and that kind of stuff, so... That's right. That's actually a very good idea. Um, I think if you have social layer for me, it was like the V3 product. V1 is just the newsreader, and then V2 is the newsreader everywhere else um, with uh, AI that works and the river of news. But social is really interesting because then you can do aggregated statistics uh, as long as you include the, uh, the number of friends or which specific friends like something. It's a bit of a privacy violation, I think, by saying, oh, well, you know, your friend uh, Justin and Jason love these stories on, you know, I, I don't know, something very private in nature. Um, and <laughs> it'd be weird if you have to opt into every single story, like, yeah, share the story. Um, Google Reader has that, where you share a story, and then I, I feel like it's either too much or not enough. It's too much in that it says 146 people like the story. I'm like, well, that means nothing. This is TechCrunch. 146 people liking a story is actually, you know, diddly squat. Um, and then your friends share it, but then you have to watch for what your friends are sharing. So yeah, but really- what, what, what if you actually did it without really being implicit? Like, what if you actually build compatibility, uh, compatibility metric where you can say, hey, that user actually has liked, you know, 85% or 90% of that other person's story here. So if that other person marks the story as liked, I'm going to increase their chance to see that story. That's right. That's uh, overlapping graphs. And because this way you don't really, you know, even like if Jason likes something and, you know, Justin are very compatible in the stories they read, or they might not be after all, you never know. Uh, uh, if they are, then you can, you know, rank them higher. So without being explicitly saying, hey, oh, by the way, Jason, love the article. You should really check it out. Yeah. Um, and if you anonymize some of that data, then you can't tell which of your friends, although maybe that's obnoxious. You have, you know, two friends and it says one of your friends likes the story. <laughs> Maybe you don't need to say anything about whether your friends like it. You just use it to drive the data path. That's true. Um, there's a lot of computation involved. I'm just amazed, you know, when Cora, um, if, and I'm sure all three of you are on Cora, uh, if, you, if you go there, you go to the homepage, and they just have instantly, the second you log in, all of these stories, uh, all of these questions that are acted upon by people you follow. And I just, I have no concept of how they're able to do such um advanced and large aggregated uh, queries so quickly Maybe it's actually very stuff. very good I, I was i mean i couldn't understand how is it that i'm logging into this system and it's giving me questions that are so relevant to me how does it know yeah. you know very good so i was looking at uh the next story to bring up and i got two of them confused in my mind and i was about to say chinese mothers to clone woolly mammoth within five years I'm like that is an interesting story. <laughs> so, have you guys overachieving Chinese mothers? Yeah. Have you guys seen that uh, story about the uh, Chinese mothers are superior and the and the back and forth about that? Um, I don't know. So, uh, yeah, Sebastian, have you, have you did you see that story? I didn't see, but my wife I think talked to me about it. Yes. Um, well, what's I mean, 
Okay, let's. I want to start with you. What's how were your parents? Uh, I mean, the, the, the gist of the story, I think, was that the, the Chinese mothers are very sort of um, they push their kids hard about about like, to excel in math and excel in certain types of musical instruments and things like that, and they expect a lot and they expect straight A's and um, how that. And I guess from the perspective of, of the initial article, how that can push kids to do really well, but then the, the in, in school, but then the. Sometimes the un, the unintended consequence is that it sort of robs the kids of, of passion because they've just been work the whole time, and as soon as they're beyond that, they're just like, ugh, I'm done. Yeah, well, I think it's really interesting because one thing I will say that is very different between European culture and American culture. Uh, and again, you know, with my wife, we're you know across borders, and we've been you know reading lots of books about it because it's actually quite interesting to see the the, the subtle difference. You would think that two developed countries are very close in many ways, but actually, they France and the U.S. are kind of those you know brothers in many ways, but at the same time, they hate each other for the thing. They're completely the opposite. And one thing that's really interesting about that particular story is that, for example, in, in, in France, and it's true in Europe, in many other countries, um, your parents or the, the entire society, the culture around it, values academics greatly. They don't care if you play soccer. They don't care if you play football, basketball, or you're a swimmer. It has no value to the parents' eyes as far as, or even to your peers. The, what matters is, are you the top of your class? Are you are you a geek? And so my wife, you know, comes here from the U.S. It's like the only the opposite. Geeks are kind of made fun of, and you know, you want to be the captain of the football team or the cheerleader and all that stuff. So it's completely reversed in that kind of expectations. Um, and so I think the Chinese article kind of you know echoes this as well, which is when you have a culture that values you know, um, excellence, like they want people to, they want their kid, everybody wants everybody to excel at what they do. Uh, I think it's not so much of a pressure. It's more, I think, of a motivation. Well, there's pressure, you know, as a parent, yeah, or you didn't do your homework, or you didn't do good, and you can go to the extreme. But I think as a, as an entire culture that embrace that kind of, um, of, uh, of goal, it's, it's a huge motivation factor to say, you know, I'm going to do good in school because not my parents tell me so, because I know that that's what people value. That's how I can make something of myself. And I feel like in the U.S., this is kind of the opposite where everything is more about, you know, being really laid back, get, let the kids, you know, pick their passion, which is very good as well. But I think that, that to some degrees, educational issues in the U.S. are kind of related to the fact that the parents care more about their kids baseball practice or game than their last paper. Sebastian, I know that you uh, homeschool your your kids, right? Yes, I do. What made you decide to do that? Well, first of all, how old are your kids? Uh, My daughter is nine, and uh, my second one, uh, Thomas, is about to turn two. Okay, okay. Uh, So, so yeah, homeschooling, you want to get into that? Do you have any comments on what I just said? So you homeschool... Your, I mean, I guess your daughter, the two-year-old, you don't really homeschool, I guess. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> but, not yet. Um, so what was the decision to homeschool as opposed to sending them to, uh, to school? And the, and the other question is, is it homeschooling or unschooling? Because homeschooling is more traditional, like you follow a standard curriculum, you, you almost set up like a room in the house, like it's almost like it's like a schoolroom and you go through your subjects. Where unschooling is like, well, we're just going to kind of go with the flow and follow their interests and let them kind of the, – the, the kid kind of directs the learning um, um, path as opposed to the parent in a particular curriculum. That's right. Well, we're kind of in between. I think it depends on the subject. So, um, but why unschool- unschooling? Well, basically, I got you know very disappointed with the educational system in the U.S. When I saw the state of primary school and junior high school or high school, I said this is just 
the level is very low compared to what I got used to. And uh, my wife got a, a minor degree in uh, early childhood education and she saw the school. She saw, you know, she, she had several internships and experiences. And, uh, and I worked at the university initially uh, as a, my, one of my first uh, jobs in the United States and for about two years. So I, I saw it, you know, right on hand, the students coming into college in their freshman year and, and what they what they learn. And I got very disappointed. I said, there's no way I'm sending my kid to regular school, at least where I live. And, you know, I know there's probably will be different in I know some areas, you know, you have really have top level school, but uh, where, you know, I think uh, average United States schools, I think are just really, you know, making it very difficult not making it impossible, but I think making it very difficult for kids to compete in a global world. Because when I see that kids in Thailand get a better education in top topics such as physics and math compared to kids in the U.S., it just saddens me. that. Well, I'm wondering, can you, can you ramp that stuff up when they're older? I mean, you know, when they're in third and fourth and fifth grade and they're learning division and multiplication and, you know, working on their reading skills and stuff. I mean, it, it seems like there's only so far you can push and it seems like you could almost, by the time they get to maybe 14 or so, then you, then it's the big differentiator to whether they're just like cruising through and, and barely learning algebra and trig or whether they're learning, you know, calculus and uh, advanced calculus and things like that. I mean, can you just, I mean, do you really have to push at that? I mean, do you really have to be that concerned about it when they're seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old? Uh, well, yeah, I believe so, because I think the experience you have with school very early on uh, kind of drives, you know, how interested you're going to be in learning later on. I think you can have devastating experiences mm -hmm. uh, very early on. And I know some people that have very, very smart people uh, that, you know, got really discouraged. And I, I'm also very big on the, the learning mechanism. I think that the schools are just... Um, very too structured in the way that they try to teach. And uh, I can tell from a lot of people that I know around me, colleagues that are kind of self-taught, uh, they were never, you know, the top of the class. They didn't do well in school, but they're very smart. They can, their, their way of learning is different. So there's a whole uh, school of thought between uh, that basically each person is either auditory sequential or visual spatial. And that's just two, way, two modes of learning. And, um, Depending on how far you are on each side, it makes it more difficult or less difficult to learn specific things, specific things in school or topics. But also the way you learn is very, very different. Can, can, I, um, inter can I interject a comment here? Um, yes. Mark, Mark Twain. Hey, 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 uh, Sam, feel free to interrupt Sebastian anytime. It's always hard because <laughs> of the delay over the Internet um, crossing, you know, the ocean. Um, yeah, go ahead. But so Mark Twain said, you know, 150 years ago, I'll never let my schooling interfere with my education. Um, right. Which you know, it goes to show it's, it's always been this way. If you want to excel, you always have to do extracurriculars or you have to do something self-taught or something out of the mold. And I think when people talk about schooling, especially public education and in, uh, especially here in America, um, the average is very low. But the ability to be able to have extracurriculars and then perform very well um, is, you know, very open because there's a lot of programs uh, available to high school students, even in a public education. I myself went to public school. And while my public school, you know, did particularly well, there were a lot of opportunities that I either had to scope out or my parents found or my friends were uh, doing in previous years um, in, order to, in order to excel. On top of that, kind of going back to the, the Chinese mother article, um, I think, and this is just from what I've read, in China there is either no or less of a, a social support net. If you, you know, do not have a job, um, and you're not supporting yourself, there is no net to catch you. You will be out on the street and you will starve to death. 
Um, and that goes for not only you, but also for your family. Um, Cause if you're not supporting your family, you're all on the street. And so in China, the motivation is really not just to excel, but to support, uh, support your parents, your grandparents, any other living relatives. And so you have to do anything to get ahead. And that includes, you know, the violence of uh, the Chinese mother's um, uh, education to, uh, for her children. Um, so in a sense, it's, here, it's about, know, a lot of it's about risk aversion is what you're saying, right? Yeah, it, I think with uh, Chinese mothers, there's such a large, there's a risk in trying to make your kids excel. And that risk, I think, has a large standard deviation where, you know, you have a chance of doing very, very well for your children and they can go to, you know, premier educations. But there's also a very high chance with the standard deviation uh, that, you know, the suicide at 30. Right, right. Well, were you, how were your your parents towards you? I mean, uh, I know you're not Chinese, but, uh, you know, I mean, were your parents aggressive with your education? Are they really laid hands off and kind of laid back or somewhere in the middle? You know, my parents are immigrants. They um, they immigrated from uh, Kiev. Um, and, and my brother is actually born outside of this country, but I was born in Cleveland, Ohio. So I'm a Midwesterner. My parents were very hands off um, because of their parents before them were very forceful and strict, you know, uh, clean your plates and, you know, all homework before eight in bed by nine or whatever. Um, and so my parents were very, very lenient. I had, you know, no curfew growing up. Um, I did things that, you know, I probably shouldn't have, but for all, for all of that, I think it's better because it's experience. And I think good entrepreneurs have, um, may not have a lot of education, but they have a lot of experience from which to draw on. Um, it's, you know, nature versus nurture. How much do your parents really have an influence on how much you're hoping to learn, how much you're open to learning. Um, but then also how much are your friends influencing how much you're actually learning. If your friends are all very much into math, you know what? You're probably also going to be into math, whether it's homework groups or just the social stigma of not being good at math. I've always thought of America as being two, two, two ends of the spectrum, one kind of being kind of dumbed down, but also as, as having like, one of the best techs globally. I mean, America has a reputation of having the best technology, right? So how does that gel? I mean, how, how do we have this thing where it's a really bad education system, but at the same time, you've got the best tech companies in the world? Well, I think it's, it's not fair to say it's a bad education the whole way through. I live in university town and many of my friends are, you know, university professors. And I think the, the one thing that I've seen that, you know, the experience hands off at the university level hasn't really changed that much you know, over the years, um, the budget that got fatter, they have better equipment. So I think that drive, you know, really high level tech and research in many areas or grooming future entrepreneurs or giving those kids ideas. It's very free, a very exciting environment. Actually, I loved it when I, when I joined. I said, if I had been in the United States, I would have probably got a, two PhDs because I would have just never got out of there. So what you're saying is America's education system is really bad before you get to university, but then when you get to university, it's awesome. How the hell does that no. it's, not, it's, not, it's not bad. It's not bad. It's just I think it's on a decline earlier because every year, you know, as they get, as, like, again, through the friends are uh, professors, they, they see the level kind of decline overall. Like the kids, for example, come in with no critical thinking skills mostly. <laughs> so they have very, they, 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 you know, with all the standardized tests and, and the no child left behind, the kids have very little education in trying to learn into things. They can learn facts. They can learn things, but they have very little in terms of trying to structure a thought or even an essay. This is the first, the first essay that they get that they get turned down as freshmen are just terrible, and they've been worse and worse as the time goes on. So I think it's not fair to say, hey, you know, it's just bad altogether. No, it's just been. I think 
it's it's not it's been showing a, a decline, but then there's still a very good program. Like I say, it's not. It's, I don't want to generalize it, right? I'm just where I where I am right now. I know that uh, the schools are not up to my standards, and you know it would be different if it was a different place. I you know I would really audit and and look at it. And and some parents, you know, they they can't do it. They do have they do have to go to work. And uh, many of my of our friends, they do supplement, so they get the kids back from school and supplement. And but what I do see is that I think it takes extra efforts to get to where you want your kids to be today in most areas. And I, I do believe that, you know, homeschooling is, is to me, I think, a very uh, empowering thing as well with my daughter is I just cannot believe, uh, you know, how far she's gone. She's, you know, she, like you said, between unschooling and homeschooling, we're kind of in between because in some level she's three or four grade ahead of level. I think that's just an age old truism that, you know, professors are always getting older, but, you know, their students are always staying the same age. Um, and so the, the gap between the professors and the students is growing. They become more wise. But, you know, these freshmen are, you know, staying the same. While that gap grows, they assume that it's because the students are getting dumber. When, in fact, I think, you know, Socrates used to complain about how disrespectful and dumb the students were and got it worse every year. Like, this has always been the case. Um, and while there might be, you know, this, this microcosm of issues with the schools and, you know, how much technology is actually helping or hurting uh, the learning process, I think that complaints on, you know, kids getting dumber are kind of misfounded because actually, uh, statistically, kids are getting smarter. They're learning more quicker. They're doing calculus at a younger age. Uh, they're, you know, learning long division before I even could read. Um, yeah, I, you know, my, my, uh, my uh, oldest uh, kid, uh, Colby, is six, and he's in first grade. He just turned six, so he's one of the younger kids in his class. And I was amazed at they're actually doing, like, multiplication in first grade, wow. I didn't learn multiplication till third grade, and you know he's coming home and he's and he had word problems that had like multiplication in it and and it multiplying two different numbers and adding them together and I was just like whoa what are you doing here, and uh, so I was impressed and he just goes to the local public school um, because you know the the private schools around here are just outrageously expensive like fifteen thousand uh, Pasadena California so right near Caltech and the Rose Bowl yeah Get those those markers Jason why don't you homeschool. You know, I mean, we should talk about that. I, I joke with Sandy, you know, maybe she should homeschool them. I mean, with three, our three kids are um, really high energy. And, and, and when you have multiple kids together, especially when you get to like three, it, it just gets crazy. And it's not like we have a giant house where we can separate them off. So it would just be insane. I think my wife would lose her mind um, <laughs> if, if they were around here. And the other thing is that I, I, I get a little concerned about uh, just being stuck at home. I mean, like I'm home all day working and I'm OK with it because I'm on the phone with people or on you know, Skype video. And then I go to lunch with people and then I go to the gym afterwards and get social aspect of it. So I, was, I get a little worried about that sort of cooped up feeling in the house. Yeah, but that's a misconception, though, because okay. I can I can tell you that many places, at least where we live in many of the towns, you have activities that they can partake on. My daughter dances uh, six to eight hours a week outside the house. She goes to dance studio. Uh, she has an art class with uh, other kids once a week as well with a real art teacher and, you know, produces great stuff. So it's just, a, again, a misconception that homeschoolers are kind of stuck in a bubble. And I'm not saying that some are not. Yes, yeah, some might. But I'm just saying it's just about... 
you have to make it, uh, you know, a priority as a parent. So, yeah, that's right. We can't just keep the child, you know, locked up in 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 a in that school room five days a week, right? So, right. but you know, many towns have programs, you know, libraries, open house, you know, open days uh, to go to go do this. And, you know, in in our town, it's it's actually very supportive. There's a lot of classes, you know, drama, theater. You know, she could do soccer. She could do all kind of activities. She just decided at the age of eight last year. You know, she was doing a bunch of activities. She's I just really want to focus on dance. That's really what I like to do. And now she's dancing six to eight hours a week and she really enjoys it. So, uh, you know, it, it, and I think in, in one in one respect as well, I've seen older homeschoolers, they say the older you get, the more critical it becomes that you homeschool because otherwise a lot of times you have to drop activities. You cannot keep up, you know, your load of work at a school and uh, being able to just do all the activities you actually enjoy, right? Whether it's soccer or tennis or whatever it is, a lot of them have to they have to drop those activities because they just cannot physically fit this into their schedule. Yeah, I you know that's so that's that's one thing that I that I was kept in the back of my mind. If he got older, say high school age, and he was really excelling at some particular activities and really wanted to put more time in than he would normally be able to, then unschooling or something that would be an option. So, um, you know, it's kind of interesting, the idea that one, th- one, one of the problems that, that, about the, um, the whole Chinese mother's issue was that of killing compassion by, you know, once you make everything work and it's not, it's, it's compulsory, it, 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 it can kill, it can just sort of extinguish that internal flame of passion. And, um, I was a little, I'm always a little concerned of that with, with my son Colby because I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I have high expectations and I want him to do well, but I don't want to get, I don't want to become overbearing. And for instance, you know, like you were talking about Sebastian in sports. So my, my wife and I were both athletes. And so we have, you know, where some families are kind of musical, we're kind of the athlete family. So athletes and athletics and, and academics and Colby is excelling at athletics. So, you know, and one of, one of his sports is like soccer and you know, he's playing four days a week or three days a week. And, um, and I was doing this sort of – I had organized all of the best kids that were in this particular um, recreational league, and they were all by five- and six-year-olds for an extra weekend practice just because, you know, Colby was enjoying it. And then when he started playing three days a week with his other, with his other team, I was like, well, I'm just going to drop that because I don't want to burn him out. And in the other day, he's like, Dad, when are we going to start those up? When, when are you going to start doing those practices? I want to start doing those again. And I was like, you want to practice again on the weekend? He's like, yeah, yeah. And uh, I was like, well, okay, you know, I'm more than happy to do it. I just didn't want to burn them out. And I think that's a, a, you know, and, and the same with academics. You know, it's like I want him to be really excited about learning. And, uh, you know, one thing that he is really good at is building stuff. He'll build these, like, Lego systems that have, like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pieces that are meant for, like, 10- or 11-year-olds, and he's doing them by himself at 5 and 6. And so I don't even have to get on him and say, hey, Colby, why don't you build this thing or why don't you do this? I just, like, stay out of his way, you know, just let him do it, and he'll, he'll come and show me what he's done. And that's kind of what I'm hoping as much as possible Um and sometimes it may be just the luck of the draw if your kids are this way is just let them find their passion and uh, maybe, you know, show them some things to see if it takes hold and let them go. And if they need your support or a little guidance, then just hop in and say, hey, why don't you try this or do that? Hey, so, Jason, have we got any other topics that are, are more tech based? Well, we can have the cloning the mammoth. <laughs> it's, a little science, it's got a weird science for a minute. Did you, did you guys see that article? Japanese scientists um, are going to clone a mammoth within five years. Did you guys see that article? Oh, the, yep a headline i perused and said this is 
while fun, there's no way I can make time for this in my schedule. <laughs> you have no time. You have no time. You have no time to clone the mammoths every time. Yeah. Well, I was that we, we we talked a little about this before. Justin and I did a, a few months ago. There was an article about the idea of um, how does that not really cloning dinosaurs, but I, I guess the idea that the DNA of your ancestors are are, are st- still exists within the the sort of the ancestral. Um, and, the, and their and their ancestors, or no, that their predecessors. So, like chickens have a lot of the DNA for um, certain types of dinosaurs. Chickens are kind of like modern day dinosaurs. And we we talked about that because I was reading an, uh, a book written by the I guess the foremost researcher in the field. And um, so this mammoth thing is sort of like the first step in that direction, as opposed to say, you know, taking the uh, DNA of something like a, an elephant and trying to work backwards. They're actually they actually found. Um, so the DNA that was um, actually in good shape um, from, I guess, a frozen mammoth. So they think that it can really exist in like five years' time, kind of thing. Is that right? Yeah. That so what they do? Yeah, because they took they had, they took like a square inch of tissue, and they're going to try and pull out um, DNA from that tissue, and then they're going to create an embryo and implant it in a the six hundred day in a chicken. In the em- no, no, in a uh, <laughs> yeah, right, uh, in the embryo into a um, an elephant. And it's a 600-day gestation period, but they think that'll work. Um, and uh, I don't know. It's I guess it's the first step towards the whole ju- um, Jurassic Jurassic Park, yeah, a dream. I mean, that, that I don't know. That was pretty exciting news. Um, because they, they talk about things like that all the time, but this within five years. I mean, they're actually they actually have because one of the big issues was, you know, can you get the DNA of one of these animals? I mean, that's they are or you know whether it's a dinosaur or a mammoth or whatever. Well, isn't the DNA stored in amber? Well, that's in the Jurassic Park in the movie. <laughs> it's in your walking cane. <laughs> yeah, well, the the the, di- the book on the dinosaur stuff. I mean, they they weren't talking about doing that. They were more talking about working backwards from chickens and other types of um, modern animals. But um, it's, who knows? It's, it's interesting you bring up uh, the chicken because the the story I use is um, you know what came first, the chicken or the egg. Uh, and I think the answer, of course, is the egg. Considering the chicken that laid the egg, that was a hundred percent chicken itself that chicken was 99 percent chicken and like one percent pterodactyl um and then genetic mutation came into the egg that's an interesting way of thinking about it yeah yeah um i don't know uh, so that's it no is this, is this anyone got any other thoughts on that sebastian no let's move on to tech, All right, next, <laughs> tech. well um uh, sebastian you had a um a topic uh one of you emailed me two topics one was something called nodester but I tried to load it last night to check it out, but the page was dead. So I don't know what it is. Yeah, that's actually a bad topic because I, I, they actually had to change the domain name twice. They got hacked since their release, and I don't see their domain still back up. So I've been having in contact with the guy who tried to launch it, and uh, somehow they're having some difficulties to stay up. So You know, something that would be cool to talk about um, is some of the work that uh, we've been doing with CouchDB, Sebastian, because I think a, a lot of people don't get how kind of cool CouchDB is and how it can be its own app. I'd love, I'd love it if you could give a little overview of CouchDB and why it rocks. Okay. Uh, well, actually, it's really interesting because, you know, I, Sam, I didn't know you were working at Document Cloud because I've, I've actually been thinking about uh, making a, a screencast on a backbone in CouchDB. Oh, really? Because I've been writing some apps um, with, with this and I've been very, very happy. It took me a little while to, to understand all of it because there's not that much of large documentation yet. 
uh, on all of those things, but it's it's really exciting what he's put together. So I mean, really, yeah. CouchDB, uh, CouchDB in itself is you know to me is like the Swiss Army knife of the of the future future developers because uh, it is uh, kind of a scalable web server in itself. Uh, it is a, a document storage. It has a MapReduce framework uh, that you can uh, easily uh, program with just. JavaScript, so it's very easy to make your views. It is it builds the views incrementally, uh, which is really really sweet because you basically can have a very large data set. And compared to regular databases, when you try to make a query, it has to scan you know the whole thing and try to return you know the data that you're trying to extract. Well, with map reduce views in CouchDB, which are incrementally built, basically if every time you insert a piece of data in a database, um, the view, which is basically the results, are updated. Incrementally, so it just takes only a small fraction of the time uh, to update basically the results you're you're seeking. Um, but really, CouchDB has also a whole stack called Couch App, which can run on top of it and provide you things such as logging session. And one of the best feature which I really uh, enjoy build, uh, using is what they call the underscore change. Uh, stream, which basically allows you to listen to any change done to the database incrementally. So you could basically have, I built a small app and still in the process of building a small app that basically allows you to um, to use that feature. And as people are editing a document in different windows, uh, there could be five of them. And then everybody sees the last version current through that changes feed. So it's commonly evented uh, directly back to the client uh, through, through that. So it's and on, on top of it, of everything Is that like else. like or something like that? So, so basically well, it's... Basically, yeah, yeah. It, it basically, you know, pre, uh, avoids you to have to run your own publisher subscriber and have to, you know, to do that kind of thing. It's already built in, and again, it uses under the hood Erlang, which I'm a big fan of as well, which you know provides you uh, great uptime, scalability, uh, and all those great things. And, and one of the great feature of CouchDB, which is replication, because you can pretty much set very complex replication schemes. And there actually, there was an article this week about a app that was made, I think, for I can't remember uh, one of the top news media for a small app. I think it was about animal. It was it was an animal planet. I can't remember, but there was they used CouchDB and they were saying how every developer basically has a local version which is set as a replica of the main one. So as they're making changes, everybody has the latest version to work with locally, and it's very good at dealing with conflicts and all that kind of thing. So it's you know I I've worked with Mongo and I work with Couch, but Mongo is kind of the more it's like the Mongo to me is is my SQL database of the NoSQL databases. <laughs> it's it's like, you know, the, the, the speedster written in C++ very fast and also with a query mechanism that's similar or more familiar to, to developers. But if you give a shot to CouchDB, uh, and again, we, with Jesse, we're going to release a couple of apps, I think, based on that in the future using even Backbone as a framework, CouchDB in the back end. And, and our actually website will be directly driven directly by CouchDB. Uh, there's a couple of providers like Cloudant or Couch.io uh, who actually provide you uh, very large databases. And uh, Cloudant actually provides you a, a clustering mechanism. So actually your, your system is clustered across several systems, across EC2, across coasts in data centers. And, and you get a super scalable system for just yeah. nothing. So and then do you say Cloudant? Is it, is it cloudant.com? Yes. Cloudant? Yeah, they are, they're, they're the YC uh, that released the, uh, in September. So okay, and so in, in cloud, cloud uh, CouchDB is a document database, right? Whereas MongoDB is more of a what they call a key value store. 
Is that is that the difference? Or, I mean, it, it, yeah, it, I mean, it's it, it, it's a fine difference to the to define, in my opinion, right? Um, <laughs> right, because it, your value can be a document, so yeah. I mean, that, that's right. I mean, yeah, you have you're right. It's, it's more of a document. You know, you can store JSON documents. Basically, that's really what it is. But you know, really, you you still have a key, uh, and your value is your documents. So uh, it's. Uh, but what's, you're right. What's what's the relationship between um, a document cloud and uh, CouchDB? Is there some kind of re relation there? So Backbone Backbone is a uh, it's a JavaScript framework that effectively gives you uh, models and collections, and uh, as well as views. Um, and it's a very lightweight framework, similar to jQuery in that. All it really does is uh, structure and model your data so that um, if your data is modeled with some sort of schema, you can pull it out. Backbone has a sync uh, function that um, you just pull out data and it does it transparently through Ajax uh, or however you want to do. You can overwrite these functions and have custom uh, sync functions. But it, what, uh, what it does in the browser, it uh, duplicates or is, very, um, is written so that it parallels whatever you have in your database. So it works very well for CouchDB as well as MongoDB. I use it on Mongo. It's, it's the same difference effectively. Um, but if you want to have, in Mongo, we have something called uh, DB refs. So you can effectively reference um, another table and values in another table. So, you know, I use DB refs and Newsblur um, to store uh, which stories users have read. So they have, you know, uh, rows for the stories that they're reading, and the DB ref points to a story. So you can't really do a join without doing, you know, multiple, multiple tables, uh, reading multiple tables. But what Backbone allows you to do is take those DB refs and then create um, re uh, recursive collections that then reference uh, other tables. So what Backbone is doing on the front end effectively matches uh, what CouchDB and MongoDB are doing on the back end, which means your data does not actually have to be massaged all that much when you move between one back end system and the front end system. This is, of course, opposite of Postgres, where if you want to do a Postgres query, um, you pretty much if you want to say do a map reduce in Mongo, you can structure you know what you're getting, what you're emitting, and then how you want to structure your data as it comes back. Whereas Postgres, you pretty much have to use the table directly, um, and then any uh, joins that you do can be done directly in the database, or you have to think about it, you know, on the back end. Um, so and Backbone is the same way. You have to think about any sort of join you do. So are you using Backbone in uh, Newsblur? Um, we released Backbone just over a month, uh, two months ago now. Um, so I wasn't using it. I just started using it. The nice thing is you can kind of uh, hoist it in piece by piece. Uh, just a little bit. And so I'm starting to write some views that use Backbone. Um, and then I'm starting to use some data models that use Backbone. And the cool thing is, like, you know, before I was writing custom JavaScript, now I'm kind of using Backbone for some of them. And it's all JavaScript in the end, so they can all talk to each other, no problem. Unlike other JavaScript MVCs, which shall remain nameless. What, what problem does Backbone solve ultimately? Um, it's how you write your advanced job, your complex JavaScript application. If you have more than one uh, item of data on a page. So you're writing, you know, an email client and you have multiple messages, uh, or you have something like GitHub issues where you have multiple issue, uh, labels on the side. Um, you would effectively have to write, you know, custom model handling where if you want to add a new model, how do you tell all the views that are, um, you know, you, you have a controller. How do you tell all the views this data has changed without explicitly, writing triggers and binding to all that. Backbone has all that built in. So you don't have to write any of the triggers. 
it just knows when data is changing and then sends out, you know, using the observer pattern, sends out messages. Um, additionally, it makes it very easy to use collections where you can have, you know, collections of email messages. What if you want to filter them by unreads? Well, what do you do if you're not using Backbone? You have to figure out, uh, you have to do a, effectively a MapReduce. You go through all of your email messages, you filter out the ones that don't have a particular value set. But how do you save that value? Backbone allows you to save that value in the model, use a collection. All you have to do is, you know, this.model.select uh, this.unread or this.get unread, and that's it. Now, you, you say we released it. Now, the, 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 I'm assuming Document Cloud, uh, the yeah. work for, um, released it. Did you work on it um, yourself? Um, no. So, Jeremy Ashkenaz is the, uh, there's actually just two of us working um, as developers at Document Cloud. Okay. Um, and he uh, he wrote the original uh, backbone, and it was part of the Document Cloud workspace. Um, I helped him out. Uh, I you know helped him extract it. Had some ideas. I wrote a few functions. Uh, for the most part, it's his framework. Um, but yeah, I mean, together we released it. Now, did you also say that? But CouchDB itself doesn't have anything to do with doc Document Cloud. Oh no, no, not at all. Okay, and I th I think I remember in our last. Uh, in our first interview with you, you mentioned that the guy who created CoffeeScript works yeah, that, there. Jeremy. Yeah, so he did, did CoffeeScript he, also did Backbone and Underscore. Wow, so, and Underscore sounds like so. It sounds like we should have him on the show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, uh, you know, I that's a lot of stuff going on. So, well, why did why did he or Document Cloud why why was say Underscore created? Um, if. You've ever worked with Ruby. I don't know if you have, um, but there's the enumerables class in Ruby mm -hmm. that provides a lot of functional programming uh, paradigms like um, your standard math, reduce, reduce, write, uh, filter, select. Anytime you have a collection of data, it's an array or it's some object, and even an object literal in JavaScript, um, and you just want to massage it very quickly without having to write a bunch of for loops and then if statements saying, I want this, ignore that, modify this, in place. Um, in functional programming, you just kind of write things with for each filter these. Um, that's all underscore does. It's a bunch of filters and uh, um, ways to just make your life easier when you're massaging data. Okay, and, and, and in terms of CoffeeScript, uh, is that something that you guys use at Document Cloud, or was that just a side project for... Um so it's a side project uh, for Jeremy. We use it a little bit. Um, the problem, and this is not so much as a problem, it's more of a restriction. Document Cloud is uh, funded by a grant from the Knight Foundation, uh, the Knight River uh, Foundation. Um, but yeah, you've probably heard of the, uh, the Knight Foundation. They've yeah. sponsored yeah. You know, dozens of startups. Document Cloud is a very large recipient of one of the grants. And so um, the thing is, the grant stipulates that much of your software, if not all of it, has to be released as open source. In Document Cloud, uh, Jeremy and I have been actually doing a very good job of releasing a lot of our, uh, our frameworks and libraries that we built out as open source. Um, so CoffeeScript is something that's more proprietary. I mean, it's, it's proprietary now, but, you know, it is open source. And at the time that most of the libraries for, uh, for Document Cloud were written, CoffeeScript was more of a, a pre-1.0 um, experimental endeavor for Jeremy. We've written a couple things, which is um, we wrote Pixel Ping, which is, it tracks, it's like Google Analytics. Uh, it just tracks number of hits to a document. Um, and it has a node server running in the background uh, that it calls. Um, and then the node server flushes out to us. So it, it's very high capacity uh, analytics tracking tool. 
um, you know, for small groups, if you just want to run your own analytics on anything. Um, right. That's written in CoffeeScript. But the thing is, you know, when we hand off all of Documents Cloud's code, we don't want to hand off something that, you know, CoffeeScript is not something most people are familiar with. JavaScript is. So we wrote most things in JavaScript. Although converting, like, there's backbone in CoffeeScript. There's underscore in CoffeeScript. And they actually perform a little bit better than the JavaScript native versions just because wow. of all the uh, performance enhancements that CoffeeScript comes with. Because CoffeeScript looks almost like the best of both worlds if you merged, uh, if you were to merge JavaScript with, say, Python and Ruby. I that mean, was this idea. Yeah, it's very succinct. I mean, I've been playing around with Python lately, and you know, I, I like its succinctness. But I also, I love JavaScript. For me, it's just, it's, I'm so productive, to, you know, in it, and it's just, it's fun to write JavaScript. But I can see how CoffeeScript might be the next step. I mean, essentially, it's kind of like if you remove the the braces, the curly braces <laughs> from JavaScript. You know, that would get you like that's a lot of what um, that's what CoffeeScript looks like to me. Yeah, there's just so many goodies that CoffeeScript gives you that you might be familiar with, uh, you might have in Python, like list comprehensions, you know, just having something that's kind of basic, but on a single line, um, calling from Ruby, you don't have to, you have optional parentheses, that's built into CoffeeScript. Uh, it's just a nice language to, to write in. Um, and it's easier to read because there's, you know, white space, uh, important white space, um, and, you know, no braces, the sort of things that I like in Python. Right, right. Now, and the one th other thing you mentioned, which I, I know that um, uh, Sebastian has used, is Node.js, right? So you, you've been, you guys have been using Node.js with Document Cloud. Uh, yeah, we just use it for uh, pixel tracking. We're thinking about using it um, so that you can uh, using it for embedding. We're on a lot of uh, newspaper websites. We work out of the New York Times building, um, but so they have you know millions of hits um, on a document that might see a few thousand, but you know a few thousand all at once. Um, so Node is very good for that. We don't use it for much of our software. It's all uh, Rails-based. On the back end. So, Sebastian, what are your thoughts on Node? Because you, you, you did a lot of stuff with it, I think, right? Yeah, I mean, I wrote, uh, I ran the, the original AI for, for Swarm, actually, within Node to do uh, reinforcement learning. Um, I did, um, or I did the, the PubNub uh, server basically swap out in Node, and, uh, and now I'm working on another little project with Node. I mean, it's just... Um, just very nice. It's like I have the feeling of uh, of the winner of the next decade, right? It's like when when I when I saw first Rails come out and uh, I saw the popularity. If you follow the Node.js list, and I follow many lists, it's one of the most active. Uh, I think there's a lot of very smart developers, and I think it's going to be a great great platform. There's just a little things that are just like growing pains. You know, it's still very young, and uh, you know you have to be careful which version you use of you know different libraries as well, uh, which you know I use a lot actually. Uh, Git some modules to actually snapshot when I develop something to make sure I reuse always the same version of the libraries and node when I develop. So if I just don't pull the new latest version, usually there's because something is going to break. Um, but it's uh, it's very exciting, and you know I really encourage people to check it out. I think it's going to grab a lot of uh, of attention, even more you know from the the the, the former enterprise developers you know uh, over the next few years because it's, it has a lot of potential. I think the one thing that Node is going to have to somehow get over with is is the, the syntax for callbacks. I think for any kind of large um, application, when you have a lot of nested callbacks, it, it gets very messy in JavaScript. And this is where actually CoffeeScript can help a little bit. Um, but you know, I'm hoping there's just a, a better paradigm or just something that's more chainable in terms of callbacks in the future. Uh, but there's a lot of good stuff. I mean, there's just amazing testing frameworks. Oh, like, you, 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 oh, I'm sorry. Go on. We'll go on. I'll, I'll 
Um, I like VALs, you know, for asynchronous, you know, parallel testing, which makes your app testing, you know, very, very fast. And, and uh, lots of great stuff, like a, a, browser, that, a browser simulator and Atari Node. So we can basically render a page and access the DOM just like in a regular browser, uh, just directly. So just a lot of really smart stuff. The only, I'll say, negative thing right now about Node is that I think there's just a fleet of developers coming to it. And a lot of people are trying to basically just simply translate uh, frameworks paradigm that exist in Ruby, Python, or Java, or wherever, and just make a copy just like it in Node. And uh, I wish there was a bit more creativity around it to try to create something that really feels right uh, to use with Node uh, to, based on the, on the JavaScript prototype inheritance stuff. So Yeah, you know, because I, I, I've been using a lot of um, Node, we're using Node for, to building the uh, next version of the real-time dispatch system for um, Uber. And uh, one thing I think you mentioned was the idea of chaining um, callbacks because if you have like everything has to be asynchronous if you're if you're, any work that's not going to be uh, completed almost instantaneously so if you hit a database call a remote service whatever that needs to be done asynchronously so if you but if you need to do th- two or three or four of those things in sequence it gets kind of confusing because you have you know anonymous function inside an anonymous function inside an anonymous function and it gets kind of like you know where am I in this um, but I think there's a library I saw called step which allows you to um, sort of assign the each of the callback functions as an element in an array or something and then you can just pass the array to the first function have you seen that have you seen Step? No, that one. No, I haven't seen it. No. Yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting. I haven't played around with it, but I thought it might be kind of useful. And one thing that I was doing before, um, and I, I don't know how you guys write JavaScript, but a lot of times when I would have um, callback functions, I wouldn't write the callback function in line, which I know is becoming more prevalent. I see that a lot of times in jQuery examples. I see it in Titanium that they'll write the anonymous function as a callback sort of inline as opposed to creating another function and then passing that function. Say like the function is called do something. It'd be this dot do something bind this. And you would pass that as a parameter. But what happens is when you have multiple callbacks in a row, that starts to look, get more and more confusing. So, But if you write as a series of inline anonymous functions, I, I've noticed that my eye is starting to get used to seeing it almost like, I guess, people who get, once they get used to seeing or reading functional programming paradigm. Um, my, my rule of thumb is if, you're, if you have any side effects in that anonymous function that's a, the callback, then right. you, should, you should extract it out. As long as there's no side, back, side, uh, side effects, I think it'd be fine to keep it in line just because it's not going to be doing anything else that's not already there. Right, right, right. Um, I, you know, the reason I didn't do it at first is because I just thought it was mentally hard for me to, uh, to actually see what the hell was going on. You know, because <laughs> there was like this function that was inside another function, and I was just like, ah, I can't, I can't understand what's going on. But then I started getting a little more used to it. And the other rule of thumb, I guess, is of course, if 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 that function is going to be called in more than one place, then of course you want to make it a, a function of its own. But... I find that what makes it easier to read, and maybe I'm just peculiar here, but if I use the the block indentation, so I always make sure that the top bracket and the bottom bracket are on the same level rather than that other weird indentation where you've got the bracket just on the end of the first line. Then when you've got like three or four enclosures, it's kind of easy to see the the, the logic blocks there. Well, I, I do the, um, I do the because um, in, in JavaScript, I mean, sort of the standard now, I guess, which was sort of codified by Google, is that you use the um, brace at the end of the line. So whereas in, in PHP, at least for functions and classes, you, you, you line them up on their, uh, but in, in JavaScript, um, it's, that's not the standard. And at least if, I mean, you can always write against the grain, do your own thing, but I just think it's a good idea to go with whatever the, 
the standard is. And I've noticed that if you line up the, um, if you, as long as you indent the function that, you know, which would be like the ending brace and everything in uh, one tab, it, it, it's just as easy to read. Okay. But I don't know. Uh, do you guys have any thoughts on the, the indentation flame wars? <laughs> 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 They're wisely abstaining. Different strokes for different folks. <laughs> right, right, right. Hey, so, um, so we, we're just coming up to a one and a half hours, uh, Jason. So I think just to let you know, it's probably time to wrap up okay, pretty I, soon. I just want to ask um, Sam first. Uh, Sam, do you have any uh, any things you want to talk about? Um, any topics related to Newsblur or any other stuff that you've been working on or thinking about real quick? Um, the, the only thing that I think about constantly right now is, uh, and I mentioned it earlier, and I think it's really interesting. I just wish there was a vocabulary for like when you go to Quora and it does this amazing thing where they just, I don't know how they're getting all that data. Um, but I, I would like maybe for a, maybe a blog, a single blog post or someone to just say, you know, these sites that you like that are doing these awesome things, this is how they do it. Um, but this is just the vocabulary. So you can look it up on your own. Because when I see that, I don't know if they're doing, you know, are they map reducing that uh, instantly? Are they saving views? Like CouchDB has uh, views that are built into the database. So instead of having to, you know, call these map reduce, it just has a view. And every time you insert um, uh, a value, the view gets automatically updated. So that by the time the core user comes by, everything's ready for them. Um, I would just, maybe I'm just really fascinated by how core does it because that's the flavor of the day. Right. But that is, uh, for me, something I'd like to find out because I'd like to do that for the river of news if I can just harness that. But I don't even know where to start, you know? Well, so if, if you're a listener listening to the show, please do put a comment under this under this uh, show so that we can get that back to Sam. I say, Sam, you write a blog post, kind of a call, uh, you know, a request, uh, sort of uh, out to Hacker News. You know, maybe start the discussion along those lines. That is a very good idea. Ask HN, yeah. Yeah, I think that would be... Kill two birds with one stone, you know. <laughs> bring, you know, bring, uh, bring news blur back into the discussion, and uh, also uh, maybe get some people thinking about doing that. Because one thing I've noticed is that Gabriel Weinberg, who we've had on the show a couple times, uh, who created DuckDuckGo. I mean, he constantly is writing stuff that keeps DuckDuckGo in everybody's consciousness. Have you noticed that? Yes, absolutely. At least there's a DuckDuckGo story at least once, if not two times a week, on Hacker News on the front page, and I think he does a great job doing that. He paid $7,000 for that billboard in San Francisco, which I imagine is a pittance compared to, you know, the business that he's doing. Uh, but it got a story in Wired, which, you know, that's an enormous audience. That's a PR coup. So what, why don't you just uh, give us a recap of what that was exactly? Because not everybody listening may, may be aware of it. Um, so Gabriel Weinberg of DuckDuckGo put out a, he had a billboard, which um, I think was in the Soma district of San Francisco. So it's right off the highway. I don't know what highway it is, but it's like one of the major highways. If you're driving, you're going to see this ad when you come into San Francisco. Um, and it only cost them 7,000 to do, which I, I guess is why we have so many billboards. Um, but it said, do you remember exactly what it said? It was about privacy and Google, oh, Google tracks you. We don't. And it was just the picture of the duck, duck, go, duck, and then dot com. <laughs> That's clever. You know, and he doesn't even live in Silicon Valley, right? He lives in Philadelphia. Yeah, <laughs> so he can see his own billboard. Uh, right, but that's clever because that's probably the, the, the people you want to hit, right? Um, yeah, and Google's down in Mountain View, so, you know, Google employees are probably only seeing it if they're taking the shuttle service and have time to look out the window. Um, although if they're anything like me, they're probably, you know, their laptop is out on the train or the bus and they're still working. Um, but, yeah, and I think, no, I don't even think... It is clear that it, there's no intention 
of wooing drivers who are thinking about changing their search engine. It was PR. And you're right. It was a PR coup. It was. That's very clever. Um, and, uh, and Sebastian, do you have any um, anything closing ideas, comments? Uh, yeah, well, just to, yeah, uh, one project, you know, Cerebral is not dead, you know, out of the effort we swarm and all that thing. It actually gave me an idea uh, of, you know, what I want to try to do this year uh, as a side project, which is basically to to enhance it. To Because one thing that I realized is that, you know, for many games out there that for all the, the mobile and all those new platforms coming through, it's going to be kind of a nightmare uh, for developers to try to have, uh, since obviously the, the capacity, the computing capacity of many of those devices is not that great, you know, then you have to go native, which might be okay then for what, for your, uh, for your AI uh, requirements. But, you know, if you have to go in different flavors, if you have to go do writing in Java for Android and in Objective-C for iOS and different flavor uh, for, you know, BlackBerry or all the other different type of OSs uh, out there and environments that they require to, to write code in, um, I intend, I intend to take Cerebus next step, and I started a little bit over the, over the the Christmas break uh, to basically outline a path where really Cerebus is going to become like a general engine where you would just use um, describe a, describe a game basically using a, the game description language, which has been introduced to the AI community for about two years now, and based on that description, the engine would actually basically try to use those general terms to how to learn the play in general and uh, try to become the best agent possible. And I'm trying to accomplish that through uh, evolutionary algorithms and uh, a kind of a heuristic-based Monte Carlo search algorithm combined together. And the end result would be that you would actually give a game description and the, the, the system, Cerebral, would just you know, go at it for a long time and come back with uh, an optimum agent that would be something that could be in the form of a computer, something that could be compiled, like a C code or whatever, and say, this is your AI for that particular game. And with all the, you know, the data, all that stuff hard-coded in it, so that this way you can embed it directly uh, into uh, your, your application. Uh, because I think that's a huge challenge you know, uh, to actually try to undergo that kind of thing across different platforms. So. Okay. No, is that no? When you're talking about the open the API game description, is that the, the API that the, that was discussed in that article about Overmind, the StarCraft um, competition? AI well, yeah, competition? That, yeah. Well, that that one again. I mean, the, all the AIs that I've seen so far, you know, it's just a trend that you know we have. There's many tools now, many algorithms you can use to solve and be kind of best, you know, better than humans, or at least to the human level or expert level. Uh, then uh, by by just tweaking the algorithm, right? Well, the first you know example was you know Deep Blue with IBM, uh, with Kasparov, right? To just try, and then ever since it's been better and better. And we're seeing like you're right, Starcraft was one with Overmind that they you know had to cover a year to basically train and try different things. But it was again, it was human driven. What I'm trying to accomplish here is to build a general game AI. So meaning that if I can, I can, you can play pretty much anything you tell it, as long as you describe the game and the rules of the game, using that general description language, um, then it can, it can play. And can it play as good as a human? What the goal is to basically make it evolve to become as good and even better than human through co-evolution strategies in, in game theory. So, now, Are you starting a, uh, a uh, is there going to be like a domain like Cerebro 
dot org or something yes 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 it is yes i i started you know i'm basically building the the first uh, step which is the evolutionary part in airlink so it can be distributed because as many people know evolutionary algorithms take a large amount of computations and they're and, on, and it's also built for that because they describe evolutionary algorithms as embarrassingly parallel exactly right. that's what it is so um with airlink you can just spread it across thousands of of nodes and uh, and you know basically build a, and actually there's something really neat about Airlink which is that Airlink can create processes and they're very lightweight so on, on my machine I can create about uh, close to 300,000 processes which is very close to a population you want to have in a in a um, evolutionary algorithm you at least need about you know I don't know 50,000 or 100,000 individuals in there and all of them can actually be doing their own thing and pass you know find their way to battle to others and the best one reproduces and then triggers all the entire you know the rest of the algorithm so it's actually very nicely done there was an article about um, in December that I saw first somebody actually taking a shot at doing an official algorithm in Erlang for um, uh, aviation, so to pilot a, you know, a simulator, and was actually quite successful. They said, you know what, I had that idea in the back of my head for like two years now since I, I first started to work with Erlang. I'm going to do it. And, uh, and, uh, and so I'm, I'm on the path of that. I just, I just need to find the time to do it. But I think it would be really, really neat if I can just put all that stuff together because it's, it's, it's just a next level, right? Trying to solve one problem uh, through like a specific game or a specific problem that you have is just great to use different algorithms. But what about if you can find some kind of universal solver that can take the description of the problem and really just you know come back with the solution? So you don't have to do all that work yourself and and you know trying different strategies yourself or which algorithm is going to work best here or not. And there's a lot of um, repercussions into you know other fields beyond just gaming because if you can describe a game you can describe uh, trading you can describe many many things that we do uh, that can actually be described as a game and and, and, a, and a strategy to the best strategy to solve it so right well cool that sounds uh, sounds like a big project sounds really interesting the only thing i would suggest though you need to start a blog sebastian right you're, you're hiding you haven't <laughs> Yes, it's, it's, I, I need time. That's what I'm trying to solve. <laughs> yeah, don't we all? It's like, I just, just, Justin, what have we done with our blogging competition? It kind of died after we, last month. I don't think yeah, I was, I'm, I'm it, not thinking about the blogging competition anymore in, in any way. I did, I did release a blog post, uh, I think, last week, and it did hit the front page of Hacker News, but it, I wasn't thinking about the blogging competition. I was just, well, it's not a competition so much as just to force ourselves to keep going, right? I mean... Um, clearly, I kicked your butt, so I think the competition's over, right? Well, no, well, no. I'm gonna. I remember you. You also told me off for not being competitive enough. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep being competitive, and I'm gonna beat you one day. Yes, good, yes. Good. I'm gonna That's be a what winner. I'm, talking about, I'm gonna Jesse, be a winner. Not, you, you know, right? Kick, you gotta, you gotta push me because if you give up, then I'm gonna give up. It's not. It's so fun competing against somebody who just quits. All right. Listen, I think, I think, um, I think we've. Uh, We've reached the end of this show. What do you think? Yeah, that's, I think it's about time to wrap it up. I'm sure uh, Sam and uh, Sebastian have other things to do today. So, well, guys, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was great talking to both of you again. And it was really exciting to hear what you guys are working on and thinking about. Thank you very much, guys. Yeah, thanks for having us. It was a great show. Thank and, you. Uh, and, yeah, we, we wish you guys the best of luck with News Blur and with Cerebro and uh, whatever else you're working on. Um, you know, uh, Sebastian, because it seems to change constantly. Yes, <laughs> you're with Justin. <laughs> Every month, it's a new project. But uh, yeah, it's cool stuff. Well, um, we'll stay in touch. I'm still working on that iPhone app, and I think we could have easily a whole show just on 
uh, web to iPhone development, uh, you know, pitfalls and things you should look out for, and then the difficulty in learning Objective-C. That would be that a great show. A great show. We would love to have a show about that. That would be great. So, Also, for the audience at home, I'm, I'm personally very sorry about the audio quality of this show. There's just been bandwidth issues uh, that, that have been plaguing us for the whole show. But uh, hopefully uh, there won't be too many shows like this in terms of audio. Level well, I, and... You're also kind of out of it because you're drugged up, right? You had your, your dental surgery yesterday. <laughs> That's right, yeah. That's why you're so quiet because you haven't said much today. You kind of just hid in the background. Well, there's, there's yeah, maybe. I don't know. How, well, quick, well, quick update: the, the the Justin Health Watch 2011. How's your mouth? How's your? <laughs> how well, I just your, I had. Wait. I mean, as as uh, listeners will remember from previous shows, uh, I went to the to the dentist last year and had a root canal, and the dentist broke a piece of the file that got stuck in my tooth, and it has been in my tooth for the last two months. My God. And um, yeah, he's been on twenty. He's been tw- on twenty four hundred milligrams of ibuprofen a day to for about two months at this stage. Be functional. So uh, yesterday I went to the oral surgery, <laughs> and basically they they put me to sleep and uh, you know went in there and chopped off that top part of my tooth, that root. So we'll see. Hopefully, hopefully now that that little little piece of dental file isn't stuck in my tooth and isn't sticking into my sinus twenty four seven, maybe I'll become a happier person. Well, we can we'll only see. hope. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that's great, Justin. We'll, we'll, we'll get more to that in the next discussion show. We'll have to get all your health issues. All <laughs> right. a new segment of the show, <laughs> Justin's Health Watch 2011. <laughs> all right, guys. Uh, thanks again. That's a wrap. Thanks. We're out. <laughs>